Welcome to the Jeff and Alex podcast. I am Jeff Hillemeyer, and with my friend, Alex Gonzalez, we explore topics that help you be your best self. And we also get to chat with some great guests. So join us now on the Jeff and Alex podcast. All right. Well, Alex Gonzalez, how are you doing today? Excellent, Jeff. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing great. I'm doing great. So uh, let me set the stage here. You and I are embarking on a new podcast series, something that we've talked about for quite some time. Yep. Um, and uh, it, as it evolves, one of the things we, uh, we talked about was there's some people that will come to it because they know you. There are some people that will come to it because they know me. And then maybe somebody finds out about it that doesn't even know who the, who the heck either of us are. So that's what we hope. <laughs> that's right. So, um, so what I want to do today is is uh, get to know you a little bit better, um, both for people joining that that want to learn your story, um, but also, honestly, there's some things I want to know about you. Well, we hopefully still be doing a podcast after this. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking right. forward to this. Yeah. So, so, um, but, but for real, like we've known each other for years and years, but um, there's, it's so. Could you believe it's been over over a decade? Has it really? Yeah, if I think about it, it's been over a decade because I met you shortly after I got to Atlanta and joined Equifax and joined the Marketing Roundtable. So once again, Dr. Ken Bernhardt being the connector. And so hopefully we could, you know, continue that momentum that Ken has had with us. But yeah, it's been over 10 years. Wow. Yeah. And and obviously we, from the beginning, uh, hit it off and have just, just become friends more than, you know, business colleagues. But Absolutely. But uh, so I'm excited about this this series we're doing. But um, and a sneak preview to those watching, I'll be interviewing Jeff too. So <laughs> yeah, it keeps us balanced. <laughs> Mine will be much shorter. I'm I'm so, certain of that. All right. So so let me start with this. Um, where where were you born? Havana, Cuba. All right. And um, what what brought you your family to Atlanta? Yeah. So uh, so Atlanta has a lot much longer story, but from if to connect her from Havana um so my family came over when I, we came over when I was 11 months old and we were part of the you know freedom flights you know this was so this was 1970 so between like 68 71 or something of the freedom flights uh, which was a lottery system to get in very coveted to get get in so we flew over my mom would say it was on delta you know, over to Miami, and um, and then from there we moved to Denver, Colorado, the Cuban hotbed, you know, of, of the country. I still <laughs> so don't ask me why. For some reason, there was there was there, and there actually was a Cuban community in Denver, believe it or not. But yeah, so the, but beyond that, you know, it was as a kid in Denver, I was ten in Tampa for you know kind of the formative years there, from ten till about uh, through college, and a little bit of my career, and then at companies like Chubb Insurance for moving, you know, moved to St. Louis, then came to GE. That's my first time in Atlanta, then moved out to Kansas City. And, um, and frankly, uh, had a chance to come back to Atlanta. And this is, you know, of course, at this time with my own new family here, of course, with my wife and kids. And it was really uh, Atlanta here was a career move. Uh, to become executive at Equifax. And we loved Atlanta from when we were at GE uh, that one time, but that's what brought us back here to Atlanta. But anyways, 
yeah, from Havana to the, the States was was a great opportunity as many were taking, um, you know, back in during the freedom flight years. But Atlanta yeah. was a great, great career move and great personal move. Because that the, the time that we came to Atlanta, um, we, we wanted to find a place where we could ultimately kind of settle in and raise the, raise our raise our kids, you know, through high school and so forth. And that's why we're here. So were you born in 1968? Or no, I was born in 70. So born 70, in 70. Okay. Yeah. So moved, yeah, 70. And so then came over when I was in 71. So it was about 11 okay. months. Yeah. And um, as you grew up. Gen Xer, uh, by the way. So good, proud Gen Xer. Gen Xer, there you go. You, you know, we don't, you know, it's just Gen Xers. We don't brag about being Gen Xers, but maybe we need to start because every other generation's <laughs> bragging about their, hey, you know, we're the whatever. So we need to start doing some Gen X you know cheers promotion <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> well um so so uh between the times you were growing up in denver and tampa um were you guys going back to cuba um not at all not for me i've never been back there um my and 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 i came about never, so never in your life never in my life and wow. and 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 just to kind of give context when i came over it was my my mom my um my my grandmother and grandfather um who who've since passed many many years ago um and um but it was my just my mother um so i never met my father um never met my father you know back in uh um you know, so it's kind of an interesting dynamic wow. in terms of me yeah. growing up. But, um, uh, but yeah, I've never been back. Uh, my mom went back. That's what brought us to when we were in Denver to Tampa was there's opportunity. Now, this would be like early 80s for her to go back to get my uncle, her, her older brother. And so she had to go back. So I was left with, was a, with a family by myself for, I don't know, it felt like at least a month. You know, in Tampa, well, when I was like 10 or 11 years old, well, she went back. But I've never, I've been fearful of going back. I mean, even though I'm a U.S. citizen and mm -hmm. have the passport and everything, um, there's still something, you know. Yeah. And I have my kids now who actually, my oldest son in particular, was saying, uh, hey, we, we need a, we should go. And, you know, now there's different access points to get. And I said, you know what, I'm not ready yet. And, and it's all to do about not trusting the, um, you know, leaving the country when it's a, when it's the right time to leave, but, but I'm sure I'll get back at some point. So we'll see. Yeah. I must, wow. I have a feeling my kids will get that, get that before me. Yeah. Probably actually, probably so, especially yeah. with how, um, portable young people are today and how easy they, they travel the world. Um, yeah. Like, yeah. Wow. That's, that's amazing. So did you, did you communicate with your dad throughout or, or no, not at all? No, Never. I couldn't even yeah. tell you. Okay. much and it's and it's funny because for for uh you know and of course now we have therapy with jeff here but no <laughs> but here's <laughs> but you know it's fun. i mean i honestly it didn't know it didn't come up um it, it's something that was not talked too much so obviously for whatever the situation was that that uh you know i'm they separated whatever so it just never came up that i grew up not knowing any better to not to, not to even like mess yeah. or ask about it no, no I you know, as a father, it's like now it's like, you know, it, then now it's extreme. I could be very visible, very, very obvious and all that. But, but yeah, it's funny. I think as I grew up, you just almost don't know to ask about it. 
because right. you didn't even have a basis to do it other than other people with their dads. Mm -hmm. And for me, I don't know, it just seemed like a little disconnect or a pocket or whatever. Yeah. It does seem like though you had a family structure around you that, that was providing you support and, and so forth. So. Um, yeah, I did. I, and look, I mean, I clearly uh, growing up because, you know, all those years growing up and then not growing and did not grow up in any form of wealth whatsoever and, and whatever. And, you know, I would say that particularly, when we moved to Tampa and those uh, kind of, you know, preteen years and all that, definitely the, in a sense of independence pretty early. You know, I had a mom who had to work a couple jobs and all that, and not to get too deep into it, but a lot of a lot of you know strained relationships that came when when you have uh, stepfathers coming in and all that, and so you, you know, you, it's part of that you take that and use that as an excuse to my life sucks, or mm -hmm. you use that as a platform to just kind of how do I kind of build from within and build to what I want and that's how I guess what it is I always tell people there's an element of ignorance of sometimes not realizing how you know unfortunate I was um, and I shouldn't say that in quote because it's truly unfortunate in some cases but sometimes there's maybe some ignorance I had where it's like you know and this kind of sucks but you know it was really to me always a platform of how do you build uh, build build out but yeah, right. I will tell you since then um, I, I did realize that there was always an element of desire to be kind of like everyone else in terms of trying to, you know, family structure or perception. So that I always would try to give this little bit of perception to the world that, you know, yeah, everything's just normal, just like, just like you, whoever I'm going to relating with. But I think now as I, you know, much, many, many years later with a lot more confidence, now I go back and go. You know, it's it, that it was interesting that I did. That was a mechanism I used probably for to protect myself. But you know, it's important for people to know it's okay to be who you are and okay to talk about who you were. You know, no matter where you're at. Yeah, but you probably yeah you you put up sometimes walls or um, armor. Um, yeah. In situations to. And you may not even realize you're doing it. Yeah. And you may even realize you're doing it. I, and, you know, so I, I'm convinced that if I didn't, if I realized I was doing it, I don't know if I'd be able to get through certain parts of my childhood um, um, or, you know, through this building or the adversity of trying to, you know, pay through yourself to get through college and all that stuff. A lot of things, a lot of grit that got built. Yeah, exactly. Um, so sometimes you wonder if the armor wasn't there, would, would that have occurred? I don't know. So. Did, um, as you grew up, what, what kind of, um, kid were you, were you, uh, you know, because of your upbringing, were you like, <laughs> I'm following the rules and I'm getting a pluses or were you rebelling a little bit? How were those early years? Yeah, it's funny. I would say I'd follow the, yeah, I'd, not rebelling in terms of getting into trouble. Um, that definitely wasn't it, but perhaps rebelling in terms of not fitting any sort of mold and, um, so, you know, yeah, I was like, when I got into high school and all that, I was Mr. Overachiever, you know, senior class president, president of like four other clubs, um, all, all that stuff, just, you know, and maybe that's perhaps where a little bit of the workaholicness came, you know, during that. And again, who knows, it's like anything else, you dive into it to, to kind of build. Um, but yeah, so from, so I would say from that what, perspective, ask, though, was that, was that expected of you, um, nah, with the family? No, not at you all. Just, you just, cause I know, I know you today and I know that, you know, it makes perfect sense that you were, uh, overachieving in, in your yeah. high school and years, but, um, 
sometimes that that can come from just an internal yeah. you know, pulse on that or pressure from the outside. Um, that that was, all internal, um, definitely from my mom's perspective. It was, you know, it was definitely immigrant family just trying to get by week to week, you know, sometimes living apartments just because you can't afford one to the next. So from the family perspective, it was about survival almost. So, but, and then almost, and, and this is one thing that, you know, that I see with sometimes with people that had similar backgrounds or circumstances, you realize that families don't even know what to know or what to expect or what mm -hmm. to coach their kids. I mean, man, if I knew the stuff now about, you know, how the capabilities to help get kids into school and I, I'm thinking, oh man, if I knew what I knew now when I was then, and I'm like, I would have been like stacking up scholarships left and right. Cause I mean, there is so much available, but I didn't know. So we didn't even know what to know. And I don't even think I even talked to my uh, mom that much about the different things I was doing in school or the clubs or whatever. I just had that window I was gone and I came back late, you know, maybe it would have a part-time job or whatever. Mm -hmm. We probably talked more about the job than I did about the school stuff. That was like my thing. But, and it wasn't that it was a expectation of you better not do it or anything like that. It's just, I don't think they even knew what to expect. So I did it. It was what I did at school. Right. So, and I'll give an example. You, an example was when, when I got, you know, into college, you know, and of course I had dreams of going to MIT and stuff, which was just way out of, at least my expectation was it was way out of, you know, realm from financial in particular. But, you know, I, um, I, at the time received a, um, scholarship to the local community college because of whatever the grades, you know, whatever it was, they said, hey, you know, for the, go to the junior college, which is much more than the norm for someone in my background, the school I went to, to go to. And it was full, you know, free for two years. And I remember I was so insistent that that's the only time there was like friction because I was like, no, I'm going to, you went to University of South Florida. It's, for me, that was like, that's the four-year school. That's like, you know, and it was just like this, this thing. I worked so hard during high school. That's where I want to go. And I got in. Now, look, I mounted up debt and all that stuff to, to be able to do it. But that was probably the only time I was a little bit of, what are you doing? And it was, but for me, it was more of an expectation of, no, this is, the, this is a building block what I want to do. And there's nothing wrong with community college. There's nothing wrong with that at all. Yeah. But for me, it was the stretch I had to do to get myself completely uncomfortable. Uh, so you went to South Florida? Yeah, yeah. USF. Um, yeah. You you probably don't know this, but um, I went to UNC Charlotte, and and uh, we were in the same conference as South Florida, and we played them in tennis every year. Ah, yeah. I <laughs> remember hearing day. about a Jeff Hillemar. Well, oh, you know, sure. so, yeah, my alumni newsletters that kept right. reading USF or something. <laughs> right, right. Um, and UNC so, Charlotte, I think, is somewhat similar to USF in terms of a pretty decent sized school. Kind of, yeah, kind, yeah, of yeah. kind of near city center in SK Tampa, Charlotte. So I think there's a lot of similar personalities to it. Yeah, I think I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So when you when you went to South Florida, um, you you had jobs, like you were working part time. Oh, yeah, jobs yeah, um, yeah, um, yeah. And actually, I will tell you one of the things that really helped me um, was coming out of high school. I was approached um, to do um, this program called Inroads internship program for minority um, students. And I was so oblivious to it. I'm like, well, why am I eligible? You know, I just didn't even understand, right. you know, why I was eligible for it. And, um, and almost, almost hesitant, because I really under, under, didn't understand um, what it was about. 
but but oh yeah so i took but uh, very fortunate I took this program as one of those kind of trajectory changing opportunities and it gave me four summers of internships yeah four four summers of internships and i worked for a bank called barnett bank which is i'm sure part of bank of america now like every, every mm-hmm. other bank at the time and um, so four summers of that but they also gave me the opportunity to do part-time work and, they, and by the way then every saturday morning from 8 a.m till noon we would be in training with inroads and everything on how to eat properly, you know, in a formal, how to dress for success. So it actually, when I look back at it, that's pretty important because it's, those are the sort of things that accelerate your career early in a corporate environment. But they also gave me a chance to be like a, a do part-time work. So a lot of times I would work, <clears throat> you know, fortunately you think about it instead of working fast food and all that, I was as a teller half the time yeah, um, right. at, at a bank, which is pretty cool. Um, but yeah, so that's, but it definitely was working and let's, yeah, but still trying to get involved in organizations and in school and all that type of stuff. Did you actually, before I ask this question, how would you describe what you do today? Hmm. Um, from like, I'm trying to go, I, I want to then circle back to what you studied in school and, and if it hmm. matched up. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. yeah, why don't we jump into like, what are you doing today? And, and, um, did it match up to at all what you studied in school? Like, did you know what you wanted to be? Certainly you didn't know you'd end up exactly where you are, but. Yeah, I mean, definitely, definitely know where, yeah, actually I'll tell you, I'll tell you in a minute where I thought that was gonna go. But um, I would say, um, and let me kind of take organizations and companies aside because at, the, at its core, it's really to help people and companies to transform, drive change, be innovative, um, and inspire others to do the same. And, um, and that's, and, and I, I arrived to that point several years back. Um, definitely, you know, um, cause I realized when I was in corporate, in this case, when I was in Equifax environment, that that's, that was kind of my thing. You know, I never liked the kind of just the maintenance role. It's about, you know, how do we take get into, you know, even when I ran a business unit, it was how do we get into business units with unlikely odds in a declining market and how do we do something with it? Um, and, and so even even when I, you know, with work with the Metro Atlanta Chamber, it's very similar And how do we kind of make Atlanta a destination where people and companies can do that. So that's that's right. kind of the core. So if I go back to college, no way I would have, I mean, I didn't even think the term innovation was, you know, sure. customer experience was definitely not even used back then. Um, but innovation definitely was not used. I, I was a, I have a finance degree, okay. um, bachelor's in finance. Um, and I thought I was going to be, I think originally a, a broker because as you know, in the, uh, around the, the, that time or several years prior to that. So going into college, sure. The movie, do you know where I'm going to go with this? Wall street. Yeah, I was going to say yeah. Yeah, exactly. Wall street right. was the movie and Gordon. I'm like, Oh yeah. I'm like, Oh yeah, that's so cool. It's like, you know, we're going to make, and, um, so, so I got a finance degree and, um, which, you know, if I look back, it probably wasn't, you know, but as, as you know, the bachelor's degree and defending your field is almost not as, in some cases, not as relevant. Right. I mean, I'm glad I did it cause it kind of gave a financial structure. Um, but yeah, so what I do now, is it connected to what I studied? Eh, I don't know. I guess so. Because at the end of the day, if you don't, uh, grow companies and you're not strategic and finance is a very strategic degree. I mean, that's what I do like about it. It's really about strategic use of capital 
And at the end of the day, innovation has to tie back to that. So that's right. kind of a lot of my premise even now. It's like, yeah, we could, I'm all about being disruptive and creative and trying not to look the part. And so you can try to change, change behavior, but how you want to make capital behave and how you invest, ultimately it comes to that back to that. And if you don't understand that piece, so I would make a stretch and say, so yeah, what I do now does tie to my degree. Yeah. I'm just not using that present value of, you know, and capital structure, you know, analysis or anything like that in my day-to-day -day work. <laughs> gotcha. But I, so I'm trying to, trying to take the, the younger Alex Gonzalez that, um, you know, was certainly uh, working hard um, to succeed, but I would also say, you know, following, mm -hmm. following rules, right? I mean, you, you yeah. were, you were, you were stacking things up. You were, you were doing the right things, but I would say the Alex that I know today is, is very much, um, you know, knows the rules, but yeah. also pushes, you know, yourself, the companies you're with, the influence yeah. on others to disrupt more and to break those rules or to look around them. Right. And one of the things that you and I talk a lot about is yep. you know, your background in corporate, my background in entrepreneurship, but yet I feel like you're, um, you're a leader that leads like an entrepreneur. Um, and now you've, you've started things. So now you actually are an entrepreneur, yeah. but how, how do you think that evolution came where you're, you're almost more comfortable now with disruption than rule following, but it sounds like you were a pretty, pretty strict rule follower in the beginning. Yeah. Although what I would say though, if I look back of it, I think that, yeah, I, I, I followed the rule in the sense of not, um, getting into trouble from a, you know, obviously obvious getting fired perspective for, for something that's blatant. But I would say that if you think about a corporate environment, you know, where 80% of the has to be kind of in the norm, you know, from a, from a that's generally how corporations work. Right. And everybody knows a performance curve, 80%, you know, are kind of doing what they do. 10% not doing, you know, as well, and you do something with them, then you have this 10 to 20% that outperform. I would argue there's an element of to outperform, you have to be able to look around rules, bend rules, push boundaries. Mm -hmm. And so I would say I was, without knowing it, I was always doing that. I'm able to be a lot more confident about it now and actually speak to it because I think a lot of people in, in, in particularly large organizations look at that and go, well, yeah, but if I take this risk, because that's what it comes down to, taking career risk, I'm going to go for this account and no one's ever gotten it before. I'm going to bank my, you know, I'm going to do this X, Y, Z, whatever it is that you're doing. That's, you know, there's an element of pushing boundaries versus following the formula and always following a best practice that someone else said that may, you may not be the right person for. So I think it was always there. It's interesting when you think about it. Um, it was just, because I, I guess just argue outperformance is an element of trying to bend and break some rules and, and companies mm -hmm. need some of that. So, so I, I would say that's where that connectivity is. But I, but I do remember um, during my, when I was a GE, I had a, a one of a, a boss I had there. Um, and, you know, GE, of course, at the time, this was at their peak of leadership development and all that. And he, and he made a comment to me, he said, look, if you really want to succeed and you really want to do well, you have to put yourself in a position where what you do is either going to get you promoted or it's going to get you fired. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and that to me is the difference between people and corporations that, you know, outperform. 
And by the way, when they don't perform, they tend to be picked up. Yeah. And because they're like, wow, I really like how they're approaching. It may have not worked out this time, but I like the gumption. I like the grit. I like the whatever, how they're doing it. Yeah. And, um, and some companies are not designed for that. Sometimes they're not. But if you think about that, I need to do something that's going to get me fired or, 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 or promoted. That's not that different from elements of really successful entrepreneurs who put themselves on the line of my business is either going to do really well or it's going to fail. Yeah, a hundred percent. And that strikes me. So what, how old were you when, when you sort of were taught that lesson? This was, um, this would have been probably, uh, it has to be somewhere in my probably thirties. Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, yeah, that's sometime in my thirties. Cause I was in, I was running a job that I was way too young to be in. I mean, I was like running a right. operations or six Sigma group or something like that, that I had no, idea. I look back, I kept always, I was always in roles and I'm like, you know, I had a quiet moment to be like, how in the world am I in this job? And yeah. am I really qualified for this job, you know? But yeah, that's when I, when we said that, I realized that this is why I'm in it because, you know, it's that personal risk. But yeah, no, and it's, and that's kind of been the foundation forever. And, and I, you know, you always have to, and, and even checking, even when you're not working for a corporation, you always have to check yourself if you're doing that. If not, you're just, yeah. to me, you're just standing still. If you're not. That's right. But I think so many people fall into that trap. So it, it is interesting that like your um, your push to succeed and over succeed um, married with this idea of um, you know take taking risks or or calculated risks that you know you know will propel you, your team, your company forward, um, or to the point get you fired. Um, that makes sense to me, the person that I know today. Yeah. Um, you know, that, and that's not normal. I don't think, I, I think, I feel like in corporate, a lot of times a, a, uh, I've, I've, I've heard leaders tell their team, you know, um, it's almost like a, like, let's not mess up the thing that's working. Let, right. Let's do it a little bit better. Right. Um, we'll get a little bit more budget next year. We'll all get a little bit of a promotion, but like the risk taking, it's almost like, well, I'm going to take the risk and then I don't benefit really the company benefits or I lose my job. And so it's this, whereas if you're an entrepreneur, you know, it literally is, you have to innovate, you have to move your company forward or the business goes away. So it's easier for an entrepreneur to be there. But I, I love that you got that from GE, which is like, Oh yeah. Well, and there was a time and you know, people kind of sometimes ding on, you know, when Welch brought in this whole meritocracy culture to GE. So I, I was there at the time I came in when Jack Welch was still there and I, and I, and I spent a many years when Jeff Immelt was there and um, which by the way, those shaped the culture, but there was this meritocracy culture and it's and, and at the heart of it. And it's interesting. After I left at GE, I didn't realize how many companies don't do this, particularly larger scale companies. You know, everybody get really focused while well, the bottom 10%, which is never that mathematical, is never really yeah. that mathematical. I mean, um, got eliminated or whatever. It usually wasn't exactly like that. It's a whole different discussion. But but it was that, like, I, you, but man, if you were in that top 10%, you got, you know, stock options and, disproportionate bonus and merit and i'm like why wouldn't you want to be there mm -hmm. yeah but to be there you got to do something to get you there and that's where i think people fail and then the, the, so many discussions and as a manager or leader it's like you know people it's like i'm, do, I'm, well, I'm doing the job 
but I'm getting my target. I'm like, but, I, but I'm doing my job. Why aren't I getting this? I'm like, well, this, those are those people who take that risk. Yeah. And people right. who, and so that's where I got that. And as we talk about entrepreneurism, I think that those were similarities there to, mm -hmm. you know, um, and, and I get it. There's a lot of mechanically, a lot of different stuff, but yeah, man, that was, that was like, and, you know, and I guess it's competitive drive comes in. Like, you know, I'm going to be number one. And yeah, you, know, exactly. you get into that. And I'm like, you know, but, 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 you, but you have to also make sure in a large organization, you do that, that where it's healthy as well too. Mm -hmm. Cause you could also don't want a lot of people who are, trying to get there at the cost of everybody else because it right. has to be symbiotic. And, and by the way, um, as I talk to people, particularly about organizational success, I talk about it's okay to also, you just need to, you didn't, you need to make a decision of where you want to be. Yeah. And it's okay to be like, I want to be the best X and I want to do my job and do it well and not take the risk or not go into management and I'm going to get my time to get rewarded. And so I think that's okay. But, this area and, and mm -hmm. just not to keep going on with this, but, but remember uh, the, the other thing that when I was GE, so another person, this was a colleague of mine who um, there's a bunch of management team and we we're in India and we were, had our management team went to India for a week and they had a huge operation there and all this type of stuff. And we're over here on this, on the shuttle looking outside and, you know, far away from our families. And both of us had moved a few times with the company. And, you know, and, and, and I remember this is when I was in Kansas City and, and I had people, neighbors telling me, you, you must be crazy. You know, how can you leave, you know, your hometown, which I'm like, well, I don't really have a hometown. I mean, anyway, hometown is where I'm at. And, you know, this, 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 this guy turned to me and he said, because I, I told him, so people think I'm just nuts for doing this. And he said, well, then he looked at me and said, well, we are. Mm -hmm. But you know, we're but we're the five percent that are crazy enough to be on this journey of just flying around and taking risks and taking our families with us. But but look where we're at, and 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 this should be the foundation for success. Yeah. So then I realized not everybody thinks the same way, and as I even tell my kids now, I mean that element of performance and grit and driving that it's 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 special to have it. So you want to kind of grab onto it and do something with it. Yeah. I love that. Um, and, and part of what I think about with my children is, you know, I would love for them to have that entrepreneurial spirit um, and certainly um, not pushing them to be entrepreneurs, but as long as they have what you just described, yeah. um, I think, I think, yes, hopefully they'll be more successful, but I also think there's a, there's a, a happiness that comes with that. There's a satisfaction that comes with that because you feel like you're actually uh, trying to make a difference versus, um, as you know, so many people get into their jobs and, and they, they consider it to be just a job. And it's like, well, that's the, yeah. that's the crappy thing I do eight to 10 hours a day. Yeah, and then yeah. the rest of my life is my real life. But if, if you can, if you can make your job exciting and, and interesting and engaging, your whole life is better. And put yourself to give yourself options too. So if you're in a situation where, you know, you don't like your job, you know, how do you get yourself out? And look, it's easier said than done in certain circumstances. So, I'm, so I definitely don't want to make it seem like it is. But man, and again, this is where sometimes I think being so oblivious where, you know, mm -hmm. you know, I think when I left Chubb to go to GE and it was a big career. I mean, I think there would have been, and, and think about it, you know, as Gen Xers, you're coming from, you know, boomers and others who've, you kind of had this, you know, you say it when, where you actually, what's the, is it the silent generation who are our parents, I guess. Yeah. So, you know, they're the ones who would like, you know, stay at a company for 
that's right 40 50 years so even moving companies after four or five years it's like was just just unheard of um and and, and it's still okay and it's still okay and there's ways to be innovative and disruptive you still need to figure out how to move forward it's just to me the magnitude of what that mm -hmm. means for you and um um, and, and look, change leaders, because, you know, as you know, we both speak a lot to change leaders. And as I, I've coached many people, many executives on this before, that is that if you are like, if you are that personality, what was great about GE at that time was that they cultivated that because you were ready to go on to the next gig and they needed a different perspective at networks or NBC. They need a different perspective of aircraft. But I do tell people like, you know, some, some people are just not designed to be at a company forever. Mm -hmm. And that sometimes they need you for a particular period of time to drive, drive sustainable change, making sure that it's sustainable, not just, you know, a show. And then it's okay to move on. It's okay. To yeah, move on. that's right. Yep. Yep. Um, speaking of moving on, you went then from GE directly to Equifax. Was that the move? Yeah, yeah. So the GE in several whole bunch of roles. I had to do the typical GE rotation where I went in yep. as in Atlanta running you know, doing account management and developing a region, business development, something that I'm sure was not qualified to do. And, and you know, then got promoted into this Six Sigma thing, which I, I remember being resistant, but it sort of brought me to Kansas City and it was the best mm -hmm. thing I ever did in my life because it kind of put me on a special track within GE and gave me a whole different vocabulary and premise of pa thinking that pause I Pause there today. for a second. Yeah. Pause there for a second because Six Sigma, um, uh, high level explain what it is, but my, yeah. what I'm more interested in is obviously having that on your resume and, and yeah. being part of that network is, is, is helpful in a career. Yeah. Uh, I'd love to hear, did it actually help you? Does it help you today that the, the things you learned through that process? But so, again, yeah, so Six Sigma is, is, um, for, uh, yeah, if it, um, is really a methodology to drive continuous process improvement with the objective of getting to be as zero defect free as you can. So six sigmas, I forgot, I should know 99 point XXX percent, you know, mm -hmm. of error free. But you know, so what I will tell you that um, in terms of career, it was great because six sigma was bigger than just a methodology to E at the time. It was their kind of language, it was mm -hmm. career platform. It was, um, so it really just changed trajectory because it allowed me to go from this, what at the time was an insurance guy to a kind of really more management GE person to be able to be multi-discipline, multi-business and kind of gave me that language. I still use it. Today. I don't, so I don't use Six Sigma methodology today, but some fundamentals like, yeah. you know, fundamental Six Sigma is what is your measurement system and is it reliable? I mean, so think about all the discussions that occur in many things today. It's like, you know, that's, that's sure. important. Um, uh, a simple fundamental thing that's for innovation and customer experience is the whole concept of critical to quality CTQ. How do you measure measure from the perspective of a customer? That is just a fundamental. And we see that happen a lot, particularly in the technology space where we measure to what we want versus what the customer wants. Mm -hmm. So there's absolutely a lot of things uh, to do. And look, you know me, I'm, not, I'm the most nonlinear person in the world and Six Sigma's most linear thing. But I think that's also one of the reasons why they put me in that role. Because when they put me in that role, at one point I had like 86 Sigma people reporting to me, um, master black belts, black belts, statisticians. But the focus was how do we apply Six Sigma to growth? How do we apply to actuarial? How do we apply it to marketing? Mm -hmm. To really drive disruption in those functions 
so we could rethink how to do it. And so in a weird way, my Six Sigma role was not your typical engineering operational role. It was how do we use Six Sigma as a disruptor and as an innovation platform instead. Yeah, right. And, and the, having that framework um, uh, probably helped you think differently and push more bounds. And I, yeah, it's interesting how some of that probably, to your point, sticks with you today, even though you're not really following that direct process. Yeah. Um, when you got to then, when you got to Equifax, <clears throat> the the role you had at the end was chief innovation officer. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, what roles did you have in between? That yeah. wasn't what you were hired for, was it? Right. No. The the two two uh, major roles there. Um, part of that. Uh, so when I came in. Um, CEO who I knew from GE who uh, came in uh, a CEO at the time brought me in he says I want you to help us be a contemporary growth organization I'm like, so whatever that means so it's so again one of my many times throughout my career where I built the role from scratch I think I've only yeah. had two roles one role well it's again in my early career but kind of later in my career maybe one role that actually was already designed for the way it was which is running a business unit but um, but it was so we uh, so we came into this role leading strategic marketing brand new um, uh, organization and really what it was for Equifax was um, uh, building kind of strategic growth pillars so in other words and and you know this because you work in the marketing space you know making sure our marketing was not just about you know, Marcom, but it was also about pricing and strategy and brand and all that. So I built up and, you know, the brand function, the pricing function, the strategy function, and a big part of the job is driving strategy. So, you know, building a long-term, you know, three-year to three-year growth strategy with also, and it wasn't just the strategy itself, but the platform for the strategy that still lives today, even with different management. So yeah, so that was a big part that I spent four years doing that and a lot of building innovation platforms, you know, for short term, medium term, long term innovation within the company. And then the second, then the other role after that um, was uh, actually running a business unit. Um, so I had a chance mm -hmm. to uh, run a business unit and I've run, you know, markets and stuff before, but this was a chance being a president of a unit um, that reported into Wall Street. So, which was to me, I remember I was almost resistant to it because I convinced myself, no, my role is on this functional side and I'm going to help, you know, GMs. And thank God I did that, though, because sitting in that seat and understanding the pressures that that quarterly reporting and, and dealing with analysts and dealing with all, all the pressures you have to deliver numbers on a quarterly basis in a public company shapes me today and how I think about helping those same people do their job but be innovative sure. about it. But, yeah. And then... Was it your idea, the innovation role, the cheap innovation? Yeah, role? yeah. So it was, to be honest with you, it was um, something that um, I approached them with because, um, you know, we built this innovation platform and then I did this stuff, which, you know, the role I did running this commercial unit, there was a lot of opportunities to engage with startups. That's, and the next one I was running commercial was the first chance because I was in a segment that was, stale you know not because the whole market was scale stale they had a monopolistic competitor not a monopolistic but a very dom a very dominant competitor there market you know was slowing down but that opened a lot of entrance into that market so i was out in the valley before i knew how the beauty of atlanta startup ecosystem um so i was constantly traveling meeting with startups and that, that kind of got me going and realized that there's a second generation to our innovation we've kind of figured out our internal innovation 
And so, um, so for a couple reasons, one, I was actually at that point ready to potentially, I had to make a decision. Do I want to be in corporate for the next 10, 15 years? Or do I want to do something independent, start working with a lot of different companies? And so I was kind of saying, I was kind of getting ready to do that. But then I, but then I remember thinking, you know what, let, we need to, as, as a leadership team was talking to me at Equifax, I said, look, we need to kind of start laying the platforms for the next generation of innovation at the company, particularly externally driven with startups and all that. And that's where I came in with that role. And so, yeah, I designed that role, created it. A lot of it focused on our, on our U.S. businesses in particular, getting us closer to the startup ecosystem, getting us connecting the dots across, you know, a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. So you constantly got to be reinventing your, how you think about innovation in the company. So despite all the foundations we did, you know, in this case would have been seven or eight years prior, there was a whole other layer we got to do. But then after that, I realized I want to work with a whole bunch of different companies and I want to kind of, I also really want to develop this practice of science and art of innovation in a different level because it made me realize too, no one's got this figured out. That's right. And so I wanted to, you know, kind of full-time help, help the world figure it out, including myself. <laughs> yeah. And that probably started opening your mind more and more to all the things you're involved in now. Um, yeah. And I want you to talk for a second about, um, the, the different facets of, of what you're doing today with yeah. the Chamber, Disruptor Studio, and the evolution of, of all of that. Yeah, so kind of good to get it linearly from, you know, left, you know, and, and I spent actually that summer, I guess, you know, even talked back then, even thinking, okay, I know I want to kind of build thought leadership around this. And I, and I had this great idea of writing a book, you know, which, um, which, you know, it's no five-day turnaround by Jeff Hillemeyer, <laughs> but, um, but I think I didn't do it back then because, you know, there's this decompression when you particularly, and I tell people who kind of leave corporate, even if it's interim or not, there's a, I mean, you've got to decompress a little bit because a mm -hmm. lot in terms of open your mind a little bit, as much as I was kind of more the person who did that within the company, I had to open up. I looked at all different models, agencies and all that. Then I found myself, um, instead of consulting, really doing a lot of coaching, you know, and started this thing called Highwire Group and all that. And, but instead of, and I didn't want to just consult innovation, because a lot of people are doing the process, but I found myself that the conversation I was having with C-level executives around innovation ended up being about them, mm. about how do they drive change? How do they convince their CEO? How do they kind of drive stakeholder buy-in? Which by the way, going back to my Six Sigma days, a big chunk of that Six Sigma methodology of GE was about change acceleration management. So that was disproportionately the amount of work as a leader in Six Sigma GE you did was really about change management, which today I use extensively as well. So I forgot to mention that. But when I realized, when I looked at that, so much of this innovation thing was came down to one or two leaders in a company, having that, you know, grit and ability to drive change and taking the risk. That's what led me down this journey. Wow, this innovation thing, there's a lot of people putting a lot of good process and I put a lot of process around innovation in the company. This is really about the person, the people mm -hmm. that drive it. And that's where, you know, one to sort of exploring that. So the Strucker Studios was born where we get to interview. Um, so we've interviewed great leaders. And what I wanted to do with that was also show it's not your, always your typical leader that's driving innovation and disruption. Um, but there's just a fundamental innovator's DNA, uh, mm -hmm. an X factor in people, whether they're a chef like Ford Fry or, 
you know, heads up a sports team like Darren Neal's or an incredibly motivational person like Cat Cole, and I could go on and on and on. And the, started that journey, that started the platform and, and of thought leadership, which is now leading to what hopefully will be a book to come out soon, really focusing on that innovator's DNA. Then at the same time, this great intersection came in with a, with a, a woman that we both know, Hale Modelbog, um, you know, at the Metro Atlanta Chamber, you know, we were talking and I really rediscovered Atlanta at that point too. Yeah. And, and, and I realized, oh man, this place is just so uniquely positioned to be like an innovation hub for the world. Yeah. And I said this before I even, you know, actually was getting paid to say that, but, you know, and, and I realized that, um, you know, we had this unique startup culture, corporate innovation culture, like no one else, creative culture that people really don't know about university systems and the mm -hmm. people here and this kind of just culture of to-do and there's so much and there's a, an opportunity with with the diversity of people diversity of companies and and i remember being in a, a halo's office at the time or conference room actually and she was i was a board member of the metro land chamber and we we're kind of walk, talking through about all the stuff and i was kind of going through this whole kind of brand ecosystem this that and all that going left and right she says well why aren't you doing it for us i'm like I don't know, because I don't do this stuff for other, you know, I just kind of gave a very, you know, entrepreneurial flippant response, you know, or that don't work for people, you know? And then I realized, man, what a platform to help, you know, mm -hmm. shape it. And I never in my life thought it would work for what it was a chamber. Then I realized this Metro Atlanta chamber is like no other. Um, yeah. And it really is purposeful. And, it's, and, and, and then when I got into this role of chief innovation officer, I was able, it's beautiful because it, it really supported what I do concurrent. So being able to tell stories of people like through the Disruptor Studio or podcasts like this or writing thought leadership pieces, it worked very well together with what yeah. I do at the chamber, which is to one, connect this ecosystem and tell stories about it. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, so it's just it's very rare you get something so symbiotic come together. And so, so it's pretty cool. And I, and, yeah. and by the way, it opened me up to meet people that I've, you know, you think you know everybody until you realize you don't know anybody. Mm. And um, and so, and I think that applies to anybody anywhere. Um, and, and, you know, this definitely has been a great platform to do that as well, too. Yeah, and what, you know, since you, uh, obviously, during Hala's tenure at the Chamber, um, you know, I've seen it um, continue to evolve. And um, it, is, it is like um, no other. I mean, at least people's expectation of what a Chamber of commerce is um, anytime I tell someone I'm, you know, on the um, board of advisors, um, I think they think it's, you know, the, the classic chamber yeah. networking event, you know, where you're just passing Switch cards. cards. Yeah. 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 But no, it's, it's, it's very purposeful. Um, and I love the direction of it. Um, which is a, which is a testament they, to our business community. I mean, you totally. have CEOs. I mean, what I've remember going into a, an executive committee or board meeting and you're looking around man it's like these are you got the decision makers of yeah. the biggest companies in the world right next right. to you know folks from our civic organizations and foundations and sports teams and the ability and i always talk about um to drive innovation the ability to to drive what i call collisions um, but it really is about the collaboration in a unique way is so essential. And it has to happen yeah. with the company, right? So you've got to have finance and legal, be able to work with marketing, and you can't ignore that. What's, yeah. what's amazing about Atlanta is that every, you know, when, when you have a purpose, people will, co will collide, work together, drive things forward. And so it's, it's really kind of a gift of a, of a platform to do that. And, 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 you know, at the same time, too, people want, love the idea of, of being 
having a brand around innovation for the region as well too. So, so yeah, yeah. so, you know, it's again, very rare that all those things kind of come together with, you know, what your personal passion is. So that's what brought me here as well. Yeah. It, it does seem like um, you've been able to cultivate, you know, your, your, you know, corporate job, I'm putting yeah. that in quotes, right? right? With the chamber around innovation, you've got Disruptor Studio, which allows you to have conversation and influence people around disruptors and, and innovation. Um, you've got Highwire, which is consultancy around that, yeah. you know, writing the book, we're doing, you know, podcasts and so forth. Um, 10 years from now, yeah, what are you doing? Well, hopefully there'll be a beach involved. <laughs> um, but no, I, I mean, to me, it's, we, it's we can do this podcast from the beach. Can we? Exactly right. And look, I, 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 10 years, you know, uh, the development of storytelling is definitely, um, is, yeah. you know, at, at the root of all this stuff, whether it's what I do at the chamber, whether, whether it's, um, what we do at structure studio, whatever. And so continuing to build that platform. Cause I think people are, you know, mm-hmm. I, this is a space that people, cause there's an, a space of how do you innovate at the most, at the highest level, right? How do I build a new company? How do I change the direction of a company? There's those very big, how do I change the, how do I shape a region? How do I shape, you know, there's those really big meaty things from transformation innovation. But then you could also go to the, you know, how do I make myself better? Yeah. How do I, you know, and I'm not going to be in that top 10%, which we discussed before. I'm not going to be that person who's going to put myself at risk, but I, I want to be very good at what I do. There's innovation that's still innovation that requires from within to do that. And so for me, it's continuing to be a storyteller and uh, convener and advisor to help people and organizations do that. You know, whatever that looks like in 10 years, I think that's great. You know, I think there is a big forum now in terms of kind of a whole nother generation of storytelling. You know, the reason why we're doing this podcast as well that helps be able to do that. And look, as long as I'm starting to continue to talk to interesting people, um, yeah. whether it's an, on a stage, whether it's through a medium, whether it's a one-on-one and the mixture of that, I, I, I never want a, any day to look at like a typical day. Yeah. And, um, and that, that's where I see myself 10 years. Um, and look, uh, I was talking about confusion tolerance. Some people are like, well, what exactly does that look like? I'm like, I don't know. You know I, <laughs> right. I, mean, I have an idea of what some of the levers to pull, yeah. but, but I think, um, you know, it just, as we continue shaping on that purpose and mission, I think we'll be okay. Well, I'm and I'm looking forward to, too. yeah, there you go. I was going to say, I, I'm looking forward to being um, some, some way, shape or form part of that journey Absolutely. Uh, along with you. Um, well, I tell you what, um, man, I thought I knew you. <laughs> but this, I learned a lot, a lot. Um, and there's things that I want to follow up just personally with you. Um, I made a bunch of notes, but um, anything that I missed that, that you think people should know? No, I mean, I think really the driver behind everything is, you know, my, my beautiful and lovely wife, um, you know, who's been with the, who deals with all the craziness and keeps me as grounded as could be. Um, she's, uh, you know, we're very opposite in a very beautiful way in that way, you know, so she's the pragmatist and I'm the, you know, over here like doing stuff, but we, we haven't talked about that before, you know, she's like, I love you because you're always aspiring and dreaming and all that. And I'm like, I love you because you kind of make, keep yeah. things real and, um and then uh then my three three kids you know have a how old are they uh 22 18 and 15. wow and so yeah so it's kind of fun because they are like i tell people and i may have told you before they are my ultimate focus group so you know to me i I think part of being innovative is being multi-generational too 
and even though I like to say Gen X is the most dynamic generation, you know, I mean, you know, we are able to connect and we're cool yeah. and all that. And, <laughs> right. But it's important to understand what Gen Z is thinking. So they've been great to, you know, bring them. And so you're talking about the next 10 years is also bringing mm -hmm. my kids That's into right. whatever that means. It's not even about running this way, but just bringing closer to what I do every day. And that's what's been great about Disruptor Studio, and even the stuff we do for the region, you know, getting them closer to it because um, that's that's fun too. As you start shaping lives, that'll you know definitely outlast us, and that's pretty cool. No doubt, no doubt. Well, thanks for sharing so much with me today. Well, thank you, Jeff. I can't wait to ask you the hard-hitting questions. But uh... <laughs> all right, I'm ready. <laughs> all right, Jeff. All right, thanks, Alex. See. You.